God, thank you so much that you are kind and gracious and thank you that you've given us your son and you've given us salvation in him. Thank you that we, we, we are made and made as new creatures in Christ to praise you. And it is what we should do naturally. And thank you that we can express ourselves to you and acknowledge your greatness um, in prayer and in music and uh, that we find ourselves encouraged in such things. Uh, now we would pray with the psalmist that you would open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is one thing that we all do naturally, and that is we all are really good at thinking about ourselves um, and thinking the world revolves around us. And it's something we excel at, and the only problem is it's not natural. It's not natural for you to prioritize yourself as number one. It's not natural. It's not normal. Um, you'll be chasing the wind. Uh, it's that time of year when we make resolutions because it's the new year coming, and I'm all for it. I'm all for resolutions and, and that sort of thing. And yet, if that's the ultimate, how you can have a better 2015, um, it won't fulfill. Not only will it not fulfill, it's not right. Okay? We weren't made to have the world revolve around us. It doesn't. We weren't made to think like that. Because if we do think that way, and if it were right, you would be God. Okay? But we were made to think that way about God, to think that the world does revolve around Him, and that He's the worthy one, and that He's to be honored because He and He alone is God. And you want to find fulfillment in your life? Well, get in touch with reality and figure out that the world revolves around him, figuratively speaking. And that your greatest desire, your greatest passion, your greatest focus is, is designed to be on him. And then there will be fulfillment. It's not only right, but it ends up feeling right because it is right. And so it's two different levels. So what we're going to do this morning is continue what we did last Sunday, and that's talk about what God's going to be like in 2015, okay? If you can figure out what God's going to be like in the year ahead, by the way, it's how he always has been and always will be, but if we think, in about, think about who he is, not only are we going to be doing what's right and appropriate in touch with reality because he's God and we're giving him the focus it is how you will find fulfillment in your life because you're doing what you were designed to do. And thankfully, we can know what God's going to be up to and we can know what God is like, not because we excel in presumption. We can know what God's going to be up to and we can know what He's like because He's made Himself known to us. John chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus has explained God. He's interpreted God for us. John chapter 1, verse 18. And so because we have Christ, because He came into this world, and think about who He is. He's the eternal Son. He's the divine Son. And He becomes a human being like us. He certainly knows what God is like. And He certainly knows what we're like. And has the ability to instruct us as a human being, because He is one about God because He's none other than the Eternal Son. So this is not an exercise in pride, presumption, arrogance. Uh, it's a, an exercise in getting in touch with reality because of the gracious coming here of Jesus. 
So top 10 list, what's God going to be up to in 2015? And uh, we'll get through the second five this morning. Last week we looked at God being holy, God being worthy, God being in control, God being sovereign, God being personal. And this morning we'll look at six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. And yes, we are going to get back to Luke, I promise. Uh, bread and butter for us. Basics would be going through a book of the Bible, so we're going to be in Luke shortly. I can't say when, um, because I'll end up changing my mind or something, but we'll get back on track. Just so you know, in case you care, I, I would like to be done with our study of Luke's gospel account before summertime comes, so um, we'll get back at it, and when we do, we'll, we'll hit it hard. Um, but once in a while, I like to step back and, and look at something from a topical perspective. So, number six, what's God going to be up to in 2015? Uh, number six, God will be good. God will be good. I'm going to read from Psalm 119, verse 68 on a couple of occasions. So if you would like to find Psalm 119, verse 68, uh, you can follow along with me. Uh, if you are new to this whole thing, if you're a new Christian or not a Christian, new to the Bible, don't know your way around the Bible, you, um, your head might spin if you try to find all the passages. Maybe not, but... Um, you might want to jot them down, uh, and when we're back in Luke, it'll be super easy. You only have to find one. But just so you know, um, we're going to be kind of all over the place this morning because of the nature of what we're doing. God will be good this year because He is good. And what's interesting is He not only will be doing good, before He's going to do good, He is good. God is inherently good. Psalm 119 is helpful in verse 68 in the opening statement where the psalmist says, You are good and do good. Now we're going to get to that latter part in a minute, but let, let's stop and just acknowledge he, he sees a distinction. Not only God do you do good, God you are good. It's a simple statement. I mean... Um, it, it, nobody's surprised that you heard a preacher say, in a Christian church, God is good. Okay? But when you stop to think about how profound it is, it's profound. God is good. By definition, He is good. He is inherently good. Let's go a little bit further, sort of philosophically. He defines good by who He is. He's the standard. It creates a little bit of a mind trip if you think about it. He's the ultimate point of reference. God is good. Think about how we talk about good. We say, that was a really good meal. That is good food. Well, we're comparing it to other food. Other food that maybe we don't like or it's not as good. We say it's pretty good. But we're, we're judging it by some sort of standard of, of our preference. And that's not a perfect way of thinking about this, but at least gets us started. When we say, and the Bible says, God is good. He's the ultimate point of comparison. He's definitively good. Interestingly enough, in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one is good except God alone. What does he mean? In the ultimate sense... Now, maybe he's talking about because of sin. I tend to think that way. But other respectable Bible teachers would say, no, it's not, he's not even necessarily getting at that. He's just talking about, when you talk about absolute, ultimate, inherent goodness, no one is good except God alone. Because he's God. 
He's the ultimate one by which everything else is measured. It's amazing. It's worth meditating on and considering. You are good. God is good. God will be good because God is good. One theologian put it this way. We speak of something as good when it answers in all parts to the ideal. A little heady, but you can follow it. Hence, in our ascription of goodness to God, the fundamental idea is that He is in every way all that He as God should be. I like that last part. He is in every way all that He as God should be. Huh. You are good, the psalmist says. Jesus says no one is good except God alone. Again, there's relative good. But in the ultimate sense, why wouldn't you want to focus your supreme attention, your supreme devotion, your supreme affection on ultimate good, the ultimate standard. In fact, it would be crazy not to. That's why sin is so crazy. We don't think God is God. We think we're God. Or we think other things are God. And coming out of that, back to Psalm 119, then we see, and do good. So what is God going to be doing in 2015? What has God always been doing? He's always been doing ultimate good because he's ultimate good. That's good. <laughs> it's a bit beyond what we really grasp well. Because we're so confused about good. One expression of this goodness that I know you want to hear about, coming from His goodness... God shows us His love. God's love is an expression of His goodness. Let's turn to that classic passage, John chapter 3, verse 16. We'll be in John 3 a couple of times. Because God is good, God expresses His good love. Not because we're lovely, and I don't want to get into all of that. That's important. We're just not doing it this morning. But because of what God does ultimately but I wanted to look at John 3.16 yes to at least acknowledge hey God is good and he, he shows us his amazing love but also even to take a little bit different approach because so many times we who think we define goodness want to impose on God what he can and cannot do and what is good and what is not good and what his love should be like and somehow we're going to dictate to him how he should love and what his love should look like and because we're in charge of good. And it's absolutely, fundamentally, backward and bizarre. And secondarily, it won't bring you fulfillment. John 3.16 is, is, is the text. And I'm going to read it and then I'm going to read it in a literal Greek New Testament sense. For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Is that good? <laughs> well, yeah, it's good. And we identify with it as being good, and we should identify it with being good. But maybe to take a little bit different tact, let's be real literal with it. For God so loved the world. The idea is not, for God so loved the world. It's kind of like the American version. He tried so hard to love the world. God loved the world in this way would be a great literal rendering. God is good. God is love. God loves the world. God loves sinners. But He chose to do it in a certain way. I've got a great prop behind me that reminds us how. We want to say, well, if God, and I, if that's how God is, I don't want anything to do with Him, and I think God should, and... and we, we want to, no, I can tell you what God's love looks like. God chose to love the sinful world in this way. Sending His only begotten, His unique, is the idea, Son. Literally, so that all the believing on Him ones would not perish but have everlasting life. So that all the believing on Him, all those who believe in Him, all those who trust in His Son would have eternal life. You want to know how God loves? That's how, God's lo that's how God loves. And it's awesome. And it's good. And it's great. But it is how God loves. And so it's not utter arrogance for us to say, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to trust in Christ. You need to repent of your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as your substitute, as your Savior, the one who came and lived, the one who came and died, the one who came and rose again from the dead and ascended. You need to trust in Him as your, as your substitute. Why? Because this is how God has chosen to love, which comes from God's goodness. And he defines the goodness. I don't know about you, but it starts making me feel encouraged because I, I'm the object of God's love. But in a certain other sense, it makes me feel small. It makes me feel not very much like I'm God. Wow, that's great. How can we know this? John chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus came and he explained God. really is awesome. It's not very man-centered. It's very God-centered. God gives us salvation through His Son. That's how He's chosen to love. I love that. It's awesome. I don't know about you, because you guys just sit there and look at me like I'm from a different planet, but... <laughs> Why 
One thing I'm trying to do as a pastor in this little two-week series is, is just remind you that it's not all about us. It is about God. God alone is God. God alone is ultimately good. But He, in this sense, as we're seeing, He's for us. He's for us in His terms. But He's for us. And this is grand and this is amazing. You want to be a believing on Him one. Let's move on. Number seven. Another thing that God will be up to because it is who He is. God will be angry. God will be angry in 2015. I know that because God is always angry. Psalm 7. Let's go ahead and go there. In Psalm 7.11, the word that is used to describe God is a word that it's used in other contexts to describe animals who roar, who make loud noises, aggressive noises. And he's using that kind of imagery so that we can see God's demeanor toward rebellion and God's demeanor toward sin is one of anger. And God will be mad in 2015. He will be angry in 2015. And we know He will be because it says in Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge. Well, so far, so good. You wouldn't want an unrighteous judge. They would be corrupt. God is a judge and He's a righteous judge. He's a fair judge. He's a legitimate judge. He's, he's upright. He's good, we would say. God is a righteous judge and, and there's a logical connection, and a God who feels indignation or anger every day. God is angry all the time. God is angry every day. Well, how could this be? How dare He? Well, the context would be because of rebellion, because of sin. And that's assuming that this God has, who's a judge, who's righteous. And if he's a judge who's righteous, that means there are laws. Most fundamentally, the essence of it all, according to Jesus, is treat God like he's God. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because the world is filled with us who don't, it's only right, it's only logical, it only makes sense, it's only appropriate that God would always be mad. And again, we might say, what gives him the right to... That, that's a dumb question, logically speaking. It's not even a good... If he's a judge, and if he's a righteous judge, and we're violators of the righteous judge's law, he should be mad. There should be wrath. It would be wrong for him not to be upset. When you see something, this doesn't, this pales in comparison. But when you see something that is patently, inherently wrong, if you sit there and you watch that with indifference, that's wrong. There's a reason, as somebody made in God's image, why you, if you're not insane or something you know a few fries short of a happy meal i mean if if there's if you're if you're semi-intact even as a sinner who's broken you watch it and you say that's wrong that makes me mad yeah because if it's really wrong it would make you mad and here's god who's a holy judge who isn't on whims like we are and it would only make sense that god would be an angry god and again you might not have a category for that I'm here to help you, <laughs> okay? 
You need to have a category for that. Oh, and by the way, you need to have a category for that if you're going to understand Jesus. Because what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to absorb that just wrath from God who is angry every day on behalf of everyone who would ever believe so that you don't have to face the anger of God even though you're a lawbreaker. So if you're still in John chapter 3, you're probably not because you're in Psalm 711. But in John chapter 3 verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son, whoever trusts in the Son has eternal life. Verse 36 goes on to say in John 3, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I'm not reading anything into it by saying, okay, so the wrath of God is on you naturally because of unnatural sin. And the way to have the wrath of God removed is by believing on the Son. And again, just quickly, because of what we're trying to accomplish here, it's because the Son absorbs the wrath. Remember when Jesus is praying in the garden? Luke 22 Verse 42, Father, if it be your will, he says, remember, remove this cup from me. Well, cup is used over and over again in the Old Testament. It's used in the New Testament also, like in the book of Revelation, as, as a, a symbolic way of representing God's wrath. The pouring out of the bowls, the pouring out of the cup of judgment. So when Jesus says what he says, if you're thinking biblically, you know what he means. See, the son is ready to go to Calvary and it's such a point of anguish because of what's going to happen there. He says, if it be your will, remove the cup. Now Jesus came to give himself up for us. There's no way it's not going to happen, but it certainly shows us how bad it's going to be. Because God is angry every day with sin. And he was supremely angry with his son, who he shouldn't have been angry with if it weren't for the fact that he was sent here to express the love of God for us. It's, it's, a, it's a, an amazing thing. You want to escape the wrath of God? You, you, you embrace the son. You embrace the son. And just one more thing about God's anger. Um, God's anger... May God's anger in 2015 keep your anger in check. In Romans chapter 12, we hear these words. Beloved, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's helpful. So God is angry every day. That's good for you to know. You don't have to be, you know, wringing your hands and, oh, there's so many bad things and there's bad things that are done even against the God that I know and love and worship. And something should be done. Something should be done to stop these people from blaspheming my God. Vengeance is His. Remember Psalm 711. Re remember Romans 12. He'll take care of it. 
That's why in Christianity, we don't blow people up who blaspheme our God. Blasphemy is terrible. We believe in blasphemy. And it is a high sin. But vengeance is God's. If you don't have a category in your head for God being mad, God being angry, it's no wonder that you express your anger toward people. Different, different thing. This is so practical. Speaking of anger, I'm in counseling about mine. <laughs> Speaking of anger, number eight. In 2015, God will be closer to sending His back, His Son back to Earth. In 2015, God will be closer to sending His Son back to Earth. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour. As the Bible says, but Jesus is coming back, and it's throughout Old Testament, New Testament. Maybe one text we could we could choose would be um, Revelation 19. Let's just jump to the end. Again, this fits with God's anger because there, there's a day of reckoning that's coming. Okay, so it's not in your hands; it's in His hands. Now, this is bad if you've not embraced the Son and escaped the anger of God. So it's a motivator. It's good for you that he's coming back because he's going to make all wrongs right and bring in restoration of all things. It's awesome reading the gospel accounts because he keeps giving previews of what it's going to look like when he returns. And it's not going to be temporary healing. It's going to be everlasting forever healing. And it's not going to be, you know, temporary silencing the mouths of liars it's going to be ultimate silencing the mouth of liars and everything is going to be worked out and he's going to rule with perfect righteousness. Psalm chapter 2. Okay, He's going to come for us. We're not going to face his wrath. So it's a two-edged sword. That's why you trust in the son. That's Psalm 2. You kiss the son like he's the king and you bow down and you kiss his ring. You, you pay homage. You say, he, he, he's my king. And that's the way in Psalm 2 to escape his wrath. Revelation 19 is helpful, though, when we, we see the second coming of Christ, His return. Verse 11, this is what's going to happen. We're one day closer, we're one year closer. Will it be this year? I don't know. I could make a lot of money if I said it was. Um, and I should be fired from this church if I said it was. Um, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in Righteousness. Uh, there it is. He judges and makes war. Ultimate just war. Verse 12, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the almighty on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Something in there, I hope, makes you go, yikes! 
But there's something in there if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It causes you to want to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because there's something in you that wants righteousness. You, you, you don't want God's name to be blasphemed anymore. There's this tension you feel. You want people you know and love and care about to repent and trust in Christ. So you say, I hope it's not today. I've got some witnessing to do. But I hope it is today because wrong things happening in the world all around. I want it to happen. There's that tension that believers have always felt. One day closer, one year closer. Let's move on to number nine. Number nine. In 2015, God will be providentially working. God will be providentially working. Think about providence as providing. God will be working in the world. He'll be working in your life. He'll be working on a grand scheme. He'll be working in the details. He will be providing so that everything will follow a plan that will eventually lead to the return of Christ. So, another way of saying it is God will get you through the good times and through the bad times. On a personal level, that's what you're looking for. God will be providentially working. Let me put it another way, pastorally, if I wanted to be more negative. God will be there in and through the hard times, whether it be this year or another year, in your life and in your suffering. And He will be working it together somehow for your good and ultimate glorification. I didn't take this tact in the series, but I could have just said, you know, here's what's going to happen to you in 2015. And I could have put on the list, you're going to suffer. Point number two, you're going to be persecuted. <laughs> I mean, we, do, we could take, I, I just chose not, I'm, I'm, I felt very happy, so I put it in these terms. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, you've got to know that it's a broken world, sin all around, hardship all around, and whether... It's this year or not this year, or today or not today. It's going to be a hard life in a broken world. This is not the kingdom. Jesus hasn't come back yet. So you've got to know that. But you have to know that the good God who loves sinners and promises not only eternal life, but ultimate glorification for all those who are trusting in His Son has committed Himself to being loyal to you and working through everything in the end, uh, to, the, to the very end. Maybe turn to Genesis chapter 50 if you would. And as you're going there, I will quote the most often quoted chapter in the Bible, probably by me, um, and that would be Romans 8. It really is true, it really is right. I'll just quote the one verse. That in the year ahead, God will be causing all things, good and bad, 
God will be causing all things to work together for your good if you're a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to know that. How can that be? How can He know? Because He's God. And so interestingly enough, the next verses talk about how God has already finished His perfect plan for individuals even though it hasn't happened yet, by saying, you've been glorified. Because it's as good as done. So how can God be working all the details in the here and now together for good when we can't know the future? That's right, you can't know the future. Oh, yes, you can. God has already determined the future, and he's already said, here's how it's going to work out. How can that be? Romans chapter 8 would make it clear. He ties it to the work of the Son already being done. And so it's as good as done. Oh, and He's given us His Spirit as well. But that's a different sermon for a different time. I just wanted to pick up on Genesis chapter 50 um, with Joseph and his brothers and just to see this is how God works. Um, even in a bad, broken world where bad things happen. Let's look at verse 20. That's the one that you probably have underlined in your Bible if you're an underliner. Genesis 50 verse 20 says... This is Joseph. Sinned against big time. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it. Oh, referencing back to evil. God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There's a greater purpose involved there. And that's it. What's so interesting about that? I think that's enough to be um, sort of blown away by. But if you want to r- ratchet it up a little bit, if you draw a line up to verse 17, uh, where uh, it says, Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. So they're sinning. In the context, we see that God meant the evil the sin for their good. Huh. Does God sin? No, God is good. But God does work in a broken world that is filled with sin. And He orchestrates. And He moves this world along in such a way that everything will work out for the good of those who love Christ and those who have been called according to His purpose. Deep end of the pool. For some of you, it's probably the first time you've ever thought about it, you've ever read the verse, and you're kind of going, I don't know. Ah, it's not what I learned in Sunday school. God is in charge. Providence is a great reality. Sometimes Christians who or before our time, who are more in touch with these sorts of things, maybe more God-centered in certain ways, maybe less in other ways. You know, people in the past aren't always good and right. (laughs) Would say, when a tragedy would strike, they would say, this is a hard providence. We could probably learn from them. 
this is a hard providence. We would say, I'm so sorry for your bad luck. You can acknowledge the difficulty and the pain, the hardness of it. But you're not operating from a naturalistic worldview. <laughs> it's a hard providence. Well, this is a good providence. But God is providing. God is taking care. And all things are working together for the good of believers. Romans 8.28 God is going to be working. Okay, let's keep going in God's providence. Are we on 10? Man, this is... Time flies when you're having way too much fun. I'm so lucky to be a pastor. Number 10, we'll end on this. Certainly God will be up to more than this. But number 10, uh, God will be building His church. God will be building His church. I'm going to read Matthew 16, 18. Familiar words. I'm going to reference Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And maybe First Timothy 3. God will, be, God will be building His church. We know that He will be because Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, You are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus took his disciples because he wanted to get away from all the religious craziness. Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. He took them to Vegas. Okay? Evangelicals would say, don't go to Vegas because bad things happen in Vegas. Okay, so they do. Jesus took them to Caesarea Philippi, which is like the religious Vegas of the day. What happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi. Okay? I mean, you... It's just a bad place. It's pagan worship. But he does it so that they can see straight about what's going to happen. He can have their attention. You know, they've got to walk down the street like this, like you do in Vegas, I'm told. Um, well, they, they can't even look at the goat gods and the, you know, all these different things. And Jesus has their attention. They're going to listen to everything. I'm being a little bit silly. But, and he says, I will build my church. Death itself can't stop this from happening. He's looking at what's going to happen. He's going to go and he's going to be killed, crucified. That cannot stop my church from being built. I am going to build my church. It's in view of the resurrection. And here we have the unfolding and the, the trajectory starts that Jesus is the church builder. Now, for our sake this morning, I just want to point that out to point out to you that it doesn't matter how messed up churches get, it doesn't matter how messed up movements get, and it doesn't matter that this great, famous, influential rock star pastor isn't so great anymore, and blah, 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 blah. Jesus said he will build his church. He's going to build his church. It's going to happen. Until he comes back, it's going to be happening. And then let me remind you, that not every local church, local churches are the expression of it in light of 1 Timothy 3. I want to talk about local churches in a few weeks, not today. But not every church that once was a church stays a church. 
In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus moves among, symbolically, the lampstands. The lampstands are symbolic of churches, seven churches. And he pays attention to what happens in the church. Okay? He's involved. He, he, he's engaged. And he threatens some churches that he is going to take away their legitimacy. He's going to take away their lampstand. We might say he's going to snuff them out. Doesn't mean they won't have a building. Doesn't mean it won't still say church. But they're not a church anymore. So I want to drive home the point to you and to my own heart and for accountability and prayer that we want to be a legitimate church. We don't want to be an Omaha Bible Club that calls itself Omaha Bible Church. We want to be about what Jesus is doing. And so we need to make sure we know what a church is. I want to talk about that in the days ahead. By way of preview, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says the church is to be the pillar and the support of the truth. The pillar that positively promotes and the support that keeps stable and defends the truth. In the context of First and Second Timothy, the truth about Jesus. The truth about the gospel. And so, in 2015, Jesus is going to be building His church. I guess our question is, are we going to be part of it? Well, first and foremost, we need to be a gospel-preaching, Christ-preaching, proclaiming, defending church, or we're not really acting like a church, and before long, we won't really be a church. That's not what we want. We want to honor Christ, the one who said He'd build His church. That means we're not going to try to build a church. We're not going to try to do other things. We're going to try to do what the church is supposed to do. And it's very basic. Ultimately, it comes down to preaching Christ. And that's what we're going to do this year, Lord willing, as God works through His providence. Okay? How exciting 2015 can be if we get our eyes off of ourselves and we think about who God is and our minds are blown by who He is which is causing us to worship Him and serve Him and express our gratitude toward Him, it could be a great and awesome year. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Son, Jesus. Thank You for the fact that He's made You known to us. Help us to respond in a way that would be fitting with worship, with praise, saying, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Acknowledging Your unsearchable greatness expressing devotion to your son who certainly expressed commitment to us by giving himself up for us and being raised for us. You're a good God. And we want to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen.